All right, the work of the pastor by William Still, page 23. It is to feed sheep on such truth that men are called to churches and congregations, whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization miscalled a church going with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger, a far healthier and more godly job keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap in the delusion that you are doing a job for God. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God by His Spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the Word of God. And other such blessings from uh, Pastor William Still, in the work of the pastor. Let's go to God in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this hour and use this hour for your under-shepherds and for all who are here, for Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, this talk should not be called a sermon, it's really a lecture, a lecture on the Puritan uh, John Owen. Uh, I know we said there were going to be sermons at this conference, but uh, as one of our poets, Leslie Gore, so aptly put it, it's my party and I can cry if I want to. Uh, so it's our conference, and I'll give a lecture on John Owen and a word for pastors if I want to. John Owen's date, 1616 to 1683, I want to recommend two books to you. We're not giving these away, but you can get them on Amazon and probably anywhere where books are sold. Uh, the first is the best critical biography of John Owen currently available. It's called John Owen and English Puritanism by Crawford Gribben, put out by Oxford University Press. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, biography, and then a newer work, I think, that just came out this year, put out by Crossway, also written by Crawford Gribben, uh, much shorter, very accessible, much more accessible than the larger biography, an introduction to John Owen, a Christian vision for every stage of life, uh, cheaper and also available at Amazon as well. Uh, I want to start by giving you something of Owen's political and religious context, and to do that, I want to give us a quick crash course in English monarchs. You learned about them in school. This is a quick refresher. Seven monarchs in particular. Henry VIII, he reigns from 1509 to 1547. He is the one with all the wives, most of whom he either divorces or executes. And in God's mysterious providence, it's Henry's appetite for more and more wives uh, that becomes the means for the Reformation entering England. Uh, under Henry, England separates from the Roman Catholic Church due to the Pope's refusal to grant Henry an annulment for his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and it's under Henry that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, is founded and reform begins, at least it starts. 
Next, we have Edward VI. Edward is Henry's only uh, male heir. Uh, Edward comes to the throne at the age of nine. He will reign from 1547 to 1553 uh, until the age of 15 when he dies. Uh, and Archbishop Cranmer, the greatest of English reformers, famously said of King Edward, he referred to him as a young King Josiah. And if you know anything about King Josiah in the Bible, he was very involved in purifying the worship practices of God's people. Uh, so under Edward, the Reformation accelerates, and it's under Edward uh, that Cranmer pens the 39 Articles, a Reformed Confession of the Anglican Church, and also pens the Book of Common Prayer, which is the liturgical standard for the Anglican Church. Uh, Edward dies in 1553. Lady Jane Grey, Edward's cousin, a remarkable and wonderful Christian woman, comes to the throne for nine or ten days, and then she is supplanted and put to death by Mary I. Mary reigns from 1553 to 1558, and she turns the religious clock backwards on England about a half century and returns them to a Roman Catholic uh, system of religion in England. Uh, she is famously referred to as Bloody Mary. That is because under Mary's reign, she put to death 300 Protestants, including Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, the famous Oxford martyrs. If you go to Oxford today, to the high street, in the middle of everything, you will see a memorial uh, to those three brothers who died in a glorious fashion. This side of the Holocaust, we don't think of 300 people being killed as some, some great genocide or something like that. But in those days, for a monarch to slaughter 300 of her own citizens, her own people, uh, would have been just uh, bloodshed on the, on, on the greatest scale. And so she's referred to as Bloody Mary. Mary dies in 1558 after a reign of five or six years. And then Elizabeth I uh, comes to the throne, and she reigns from 1558 to 1603. And under Elizabeth, something of monarchical stability is established. Elizabeth ushers in what is known as the Elizabethan settlement or the religious settlement. Uh, Anglicanism is established for good as the state religion, but it's not exactly like a reformed church in the way maybe Calvin's Geneva was a reformed church. A lot of people consider Anglicanism in those days to be somewhere between Roman Catholicism and uh, more reformed uh, wings of the church. And it's under Elizabeth's reign, under the Elizabethan settlement, that the Puritan movement is born. The Puritan movement begins as a reform movement within the Church of England that is dissatisfied with the Elizabethan settlement and wants to push for further reform. Uh, the idea of any type of settlement in religion is anathema to the Puritans. We should always be reforming. We should always be striving to live out more and more with greater fidelity the ideals that are set forth in the Bible for the church and for her doctrine. After Elizabeth dies in 1603, James I comes to the throne, and he reigns from 1603 to 1625. Uh, interestingly enough, James I of England is also James VI of Scotland. Um, I don't write the mail, okay? That's just the Brits and their funny way of doing things. But they called James a Calvinist from Scotland to come and serve as their monarch. And though there was great hope that under James, the Puritan movement would then ascend and their values would be greatly appreciated, uh, James would prove to be a disappointment to the Puritans. Though it is under King James that the King James Version of the Bible, the vernacular translation that is so well known, uh, was produced. After James... His son, Charles I, comes to the throne, reigning from 1629 to 1649. One spoiler alert, he loses his head, and Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector, uh, 
uh, takes over at that point. Charles I is Puritanism's arch nemesis, a staunch opponent to the Puritan movement. That's a crash course in British monarchs. Now a quick crash course in Puritanism. Puritanism was essentially, as I said, a reformational movement that first began within the Church of England in the 1550s under Elizabeth's reign. The Puritan movement sought to bring about the further renewal and reformation of the doctrine and life of the church. The Puritans were chiefly after reform. Reform in the Church of England, reform in their parishes, reform in their local churches, reform in their doctrine, reform in their practice, reform in their families. The Puritans, as much as anybody, live out the creed, semper reformanda, always reforming. Uh, The American Puritans, we just celebrated 400 years since the Mayflower came to America. The American Puritans maintained this reformational impulse as well. They were after a New England, a city set on a hill. Now, the Puritan movement in England is not an homogenous movement. There's a great degree of diversity among the Puritans. Take, for example, the issue of church polity. Within the Puritan movement, many of them stay within the state church and are quite comfortable within the context of an Episcopalian framework, very hierarchical system of church government. Uh, Most of them are Presbyterians. Many of them are Congregationalists. Still more are Baptists. There's a lot of diversity within the Puritan movement. However, a few traits unite all the Puritans. I'm going to suggest four traits that unite all Puritans. Number one, a commitment to reform, as I've already said. The Puritans are after reform in the church. Number two, a commitment to the absolute authority of the Bible. The absolute authority of the Bible over popes, over priests, over bishops and archbishops, over various church traditions. The authority of the Bible with respect to church order, with respect to public worship, with respect to the family, everything is to be ordered and regulated by God's Word and God's Word alone. Number three, the genetic traits uniting all Puritans. Number three, a commitment to reformed worship. A commitment to reformed worship. Uh, This was as important as anything to the Puritan program in England, reforming the worship of England. No vestments, no candles, no altars, no icons, only that which the Bible itself prescribes or warrants. From preaching to the observance of the sacraments and everything in between, the Puritans were after reform in worship. And then fourthly and finally, and I would submit that this is what distinguishes the Puritans above all else, is their commitment to experimental Christianity. Their commitment to experimental Christianity. By experimental, that's an older word. I don't mean trial and error, um, like the running of experiment. I mean like experiential, like vital living, experimental Christianity. The Puritans are after heart religion. They reject nominalism. They are after vital godliness and true experimental piety. If you go into my study just down the hall and you go to the Puritan section of my library, you pull any volume Um, I I feel safe betting that in any volume there will be a treatise on prayer, the Word of God, communion with God, these issues that form the heart of experimental piety. John Owen is one of the most prominent of the Puritans. He is considered by many to be the preeminent theologian of the Puritan movement. His collected works published by the Banner of Truth uh, span 16 volumes, 24 if you include Uh, his two-million-word commentary on the book of Hebrews. 
Uh, His most well-known works are his treatise on the mortification of sin in believers, his treatise on communion with God, and his treatise on the glory of Christ. Okay, so that's a quick crash course, British monarchs and in English Puritanism. Now, where does Owen fit into this context? When Owen is born in 1616, James I is on the throne. King James, as I said, has proven to be a disappointment to the Puritan cause and only served to make life harder for the Puritans. In 1625, when Owen is nine years old, James I dies, and his son Charles I takes the throne, and Charles I is as high church as they come, as Anglo-Catholic as they come, and he is an opponent of Puritanism. Uh, He, along with his archbishop, William Laud, make life miserable for the Puritans. Together, they promote church practices that increasingly appear to be Roman Catholic in their orientation. The political context into which John Owen is born is one that is unstable. Uh, Owen will only be in his mid-twenties when the English Civil War begins in 1642, so the relationship between Parliament and the king was unstable for many years uh, prior to the Civil War, indeed most of Owen's life. So Owen is growing up in a time of national and political tumult. You may think we are living in a time of national and political tumult. We don't know the half of it. Okay? Owen lived in much more tumultuous times. He is also born into a religious context that is hostile to Puritanism. This affects Owen profoundly because as you will see in a moment, Owen was reared in a Puritan household. He is born into the world as a religious exile, into a world that is hostile to many of the beliefs that were owned and cherished by his own family. And Owen would become aware very early in his life that his convictions were not valued among the churches of his day. Now, that will eventually change, but starting out, Owen is on the outside looking in on the religious world of England. Now, let's get to know something of Owen's story. Now, let's start with Puritan beginnings and an Oxford education. Owen is born in 1616 in the charming little village of Stadhampton in Oxfordshire. We don't know the precise date of his birth. He's born in a Puritan home. His father was a Puritan pastor. At the age of 12, Owen enters Queen's College, Oxford. Uh, Now, entering university at the age of 12 is not as exceptional as it sounds, but if you have a 12-year-old son who can sometimes be a smart aleck and a little fresh, uh, just tell him when he's mouthing off that when Owen was your age, son, he entered Queen's College, Oxford. Uh, But what is truly exceptional about Owen is just how bright and how hardworking Owen is as a student at this young age. He allows himself only four hours of sleep per night, He gives himself tirelessly to his studies from a very early age and distinguishes himself as a young scholar. He receives his BA in 1632 at the age of 16, his MA in 1635 at the age of 19. Owen stays on at Oxford for a couple of years after earning his degrees and does some teaching there. Uh, He's also ordained to pastoral ministry while at Oxford. Now, don't think that means he was given a church Uh, while he was there. It just means he passed his holy orders, was more or less licensed to be a pastor and ordained to the ministry, but he doesn't become a pastor of a local congregation until later. In 1635, Owen appears to be on the cusp of a significant academic career at Oxford. Everything has lined up for him to be a tremendously successful professional theologian, and he is essentially given access to all the halls of power and influence at Oxford. Uh, Few would have been better poised to enter upon an absolutely prodigious theological career than John Owen. 
However, things begin to change for Owen. He becomes increasingly disillusioned with what he's seeing at Oxford and in the religious scene in general in England. And there are three things in particular that contribute to Owen's disillusionment. Number one, Archbishop Laud's new statutes with respect to church order and worship, which Owen views as harmful and even profane, dishonoring to God. Oxford is in many ways the focal point of these new statutes, the place where they are showcased most prominently. Second factor contributing to Owen's disillusionment is the rise of Arminianism in Oxford, which Owen believes conveys too low a view of God and of sovereign grace and too high a view of man. And then number three, and most significantly for Owen, he is distressed and disillusioned by the low ebb of personal piety among the students and professors at Oxford. He discerns very little of a true hatred for sin and of a real hunger for God and His Word. And because of these discouraging trends, Owen turns his back on a promising theological career in England's preeminent university, believing that pursuing such a career at such a place at such a time would compromise his integrity before God. And so he leaves Oxford in 1637 when he is only 21 years old. He turns his back on everything Oxford had to offer him, perhaps the most successful career that might have been had by a young divine in England. Owen then enters a period of obscurity and despondency. Owen struggles mightily with depression in his early 20s. He wrestles with disillusionment over what he's seeing in the churches and in the universities. He struggles with uncertainty with respect to his own future. But most significantly, Owen wrestles internally with doubts over the state of his own soul. Uh, as best we can tell, Owen persists in this malaise of doubt, disillusionment, and discouragement until 1642 when at the age of 26, Owen is converted. In 1642, Owen is in London, and he goes with some friends to St. Mary Aldermanbury. It's the name of the church. Again, I don't write the mail. Uh, he goes to St. Mary Aldermanbury to hear the famous celebrity preacher Edmund Calamy. However, shortly before the service, it is announced that Edmund Calamy would not be able to come and would be replaced by another preacher. Uh, Owen's friends decide to leave, but for whatever reason, we don't know exactly why, Owen decides to stay and hear the replacement preacher. And it is while listening to the sermon preached by an obscure country minister that Owen is converted. The narrative goes as follows. This is a quote. At last there came up a country minister to the pulpit, a stranger not only to Mr. Owen but to the parish, who having prayed fervently took for his text these words, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Matthew 8, 26. The very reading of the word surprised Mr. Owen, upon which he secretly put up a prayer that God would please by him to speak to his condition, and his prayer was heard. For in that sermon, the minister was directed to answer those very objections which Mr. Owen had commonly formed against himself. And though he had formerly given the same answers to himself without any effect, yet now the time was come when God designed to speak peace to his soul. And this sermon, though otherwise a plain, familiar discourse, I think that means it wasn't a very good sermon. Uh, sometimes you might get down from the pulpit and think that was just a plain, familiar discourse. It really wasn't worth much. This sermon, 
Though otherwise a plain familiar discourse was blessed for the removing of all his doubts and laid the foundation of that solid peace and comfort which he afterwards enjoyed as long as he lived. It is very remarkable that Mr. Owen could never come to the knowledge of this ministry, though he made the most diligent inquiry, meaning he, he could never find the preacher who preached the sermon uh, where the Lord was pleased to convert him. In this way, Owen's conversion is very similar to the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. You may know his story. At the age of 15, Spurgeon walks out of his parents' home in Colchester. He's in the middle of a snowstorm, we think going to hear his dad preach. He turns off into Artillery Street, into a primitive Methodist chapel. There's like eight people there. The preacher who was supposed to be there got stuck in the storm, and some country farmer gets up there and preaches a really terrible sermon. Spurgeon called it a stupid sermon, but it was used of God to the conversion of his soul. In 1642, Owen is wonderfully converted. Now consider Owen the Puritan pastor. Things begin to change markedly for Owen at this point. In 1643, Owen publishes his first book titled A Display of Arminianism, in which he critiques Arminian theology, particularly as it came to expression at Oxford. And as a result of this book, Parliament awards Owen the pastorate of Fordham in Essex. So that's an hour or two east of London. You can still visit that town today. That congregation, by the way, is uh, still an evangelical church. I've been there before. If you went there today, you would hear the gospel preached these 400 years or so later in Fordham in the East Country. Owen pastors there from 1643 to 1646. His pastorate is not altogether happy. Now remember, let's cut Owen some slack. He's 26, 27 maybe, uh, when he begins his pastorate there. Uh, So he's a young man. He's still raw. He's still figuring things out. Uh, And at Fordham, he often complains that the people there were dull and did not give proper attention to his sermons. He said the parish contained many, quote, grossly ignorant persons. Uh, So some of you may feel an affinity with Owen at this point. (laughs) Hopefully not. That said, a few important things happened for Owen during this time. Uh, First of all, he learns how to be a pastor. He learns practically what it means to shepherd the souls of men and women. And we can profit from some of the fruit of these early reflections on pastoral ministry because during this time, Owen publishes a book called The Duty of Pastors and People Distinguished. And as a rule of thumb, I don't know if you've had the chance to read Owen. If you can only read one thing, read him on the mortification of sin in believers. It's just one of those transcendent, perennial relevant uh, books that reads so well even today. Uh, But if you want to read more deeply on Owen, Owen on pastoral ministry is excellent. And this book, written early in his pastoral career, is excellent. Uh, Also during this time, Owen begins to develop his congregationalist views as distinguished from his Presbyterian views. Uh, Owen also during this time marries Mary Rook in 1644. Uh, It was in many ways a sad marriage, not because the marriage lacked love, uh, but because the couple would have 11 children and Owen would bury them all, uh, all of them except for one in childhood and would eventually bury Mary as well after 30 years of marriage. Now, Owen doesn't write much about himself, but when you read Owen, he's not a detached ivory tower theologian. This is a man of deep experience who year after year was burying his children. That's especially um, special to remember when you read his meditations on communion with God and on the glories of Christ and his hunger uh, for heaven. This was a man of deep experience. One more thing to observe about this period of Owen's life, just simply to observe, he is humbly serving Christ as a pastor in relative obscurity. Uh, and though he has the gifts and the pedigree to occupy a place of prominence in English religious life, as he would later on, 
He doesn't push himself into prominence. He waits upon the Lord and serves faithfully where God had placed him, expecting, by the way, that he would always be in obscurity. And this is kind of a minor theme in Spurgeon's life and ministry. There's a lot of risings and fallings in Spur- excuse me, Owen's life. And um, we see this humble waiting on God, this willingness to serve him wherever God has him. Well, starting in 1646, Owen begins a steady rise from relative obscurity to national prominence. On April 29th, 1646, Owen is asked to preach for the first time before Parliament. That sounds awesome, not so awesome. Think of it as, you know, he's the chapel speaker for the week, more or less, uh, with Parliament. Parliament is so pleased with his preaching that he is transferred from Fordham to the larger and more prestigious parish of Coggeshall, just a few miles from Fordham. And Owen finds Coggeshall to be a much better situation. Uh, He has a larger congregation and one that is much more spiritually vibrant and attentive to his ministry. If you go to England today, you go visit East Anglia, and you can only go to one or the other, go to Coggeshall. It's much more picturesque and quaint. I think Fordham's next like a slaughterhouse or something like that. So, uh, Now consider with me the army chaplain and vice chancellor of Oxford. Now let me remind you of current events in England. The English Civil War has been raging on since 1642. A parliament is seeking to supplant Charles I, The first phase of the Civil War ends with the execution of Charles I on January 30th, 1649. The Puritans are now coming into power, and this is the eve of a real golden age for the Puritans in England. Finally, after nearly a century, it is their convictions that will prevail in English national and religious life. On the day after Charles' execution, Owen is asked to preach again before Parliament, and as a result of his preaching, he gains the favor of Oliver Cromwell, the commanding general of Parliament's new model army and later Lord Protector of England. And Cromwell invites Owen to join him on his campaigns in Scotland and Ireland as Cromwell's army chaplain. And so Owen joins Cromwell, and this proves to be the pathway to prestige for Owen. So from Oxford as a student where he is exiled, to London where he's converted, to Fordham where he first learns to pastor, to Coggeshall where he grows in profile as a minister, and now to Scotland and Ireland as chaplain to Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. And while in Scotland and Ireland he preaches to the largest crowds of his career, he finds the Irish especially hungry for sound preaching, and he experiences something of a minor revival there. Then after the campaigns in Ireland, Owen gets his grand appointment. Uh, Through his connections with Oliver Cromwell, Owen is granted the deanery of Christ Church, Oxford. Christ Church is like the premier college in Oxford, the most prominent and prestigious of the Oxford colleges. Shakespeare famously referred to Christ Church as that college so famous, so excellent in art, and still so rising. Uh, Owen is the dean, which basically means he's the head of the college, But a year later, he is appointed vice-chancellor of the entire university, which is essentially the highest office Oxford has to offer. Now, technically, Cromwell is the chancellor, but that's just a figurehead title. Owen is the vice-chancellor. He is the man in charge, and there's hardly a more prestigious position in the theological world of England than to be vice-chancellor of Oxford. And as vice-chancellor, Owen gives himself to a number of crucial administrative and academic reforms, and generally performs his duties with exceptional aplomb. 
And one of his most cherished responsibilities is to preach at the University Church of St. Mary to the faculty and student body every week. So he's at the premier church in Oxford preaching every week to the student body. Interestingly enough, 100 years before this, this is the church where Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer are tried before Mary I, and they are burned at the stake right outside uh, the University Church of St. Mary. Also interestingly enough, 300 years after this, uh, this is where uh, the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis gets up to preach his wartime messages on the weight of glory and the problem of fame. You can go to that church today. Owen is here every Sunday preaching to the undergraduates of Oxford University. Now here's Owen at Oxford. Remember, he had been educated at Oxford. He witnessed religious and moral decline at Oxford. He had become disillusioned with the poor theology and lack of personal piety among the students and the faculty at Oxford. He had groaned under the profane statutes of Archbishop Laud. He had been exiled from Oxford in 1637. Now he's back roughly 15 years later, and everything is different. There is no monarchy in England. And the Puritan theology he so cherished, even as, his, as a boy and as his father and grandfather cherished, hit the Puritan theology is now in the ascendancy. Uh, these are the perspectives that are now valued among the elites in the religious and national life of England. And here's Owen. He has risen to possibly the highest position in the theological world of England. He has all the power. He has all the resources. He has all the institutions. He has all the political contacts. He has stewardship over faculty appointments, over the student body, over the curriculum, and what's more, he's the one now addressing the students every week from the pulpit. He was in their shoes 15 years earlier and was so disillusioned by what he saw and heard, but now he's the one occupying the pulpit of St. Mary's. He has an audience with the young men, with the future pastors of England and America as well, as many of them would emigrate to America in the years to come. Now here's the question I'm interested in. What does he say to them? What matters are uppermost in Owen's mind? What are the things Owen thinks are most important for the next generation of pastors to be thinking about? I wonder what you would think uh, Owen's priorities would be as he addresses would-be pastors. Uh, perhaps he would speak to them about the importance of reformed worship. Uh, or the merits of Calvinism, or proper principles of church order, or maybe how to write good sermons. Or perhaps Owen would lay out a political theology for the nation. He doesn't talk about any of that. Two things consume Owen's attention during this period, and they form the primary subject matter of his sermons to the students of Oxford. The sermons he preaches to these men would later be published as two of Owen's most famous works. What does Owen preach to England's next generation of pastors? He preaches to them on communion with God and on the mortification of sin in believers. His moment has come. He's in the pulpit of St. Mary's week by week. He has risen to the highest seat of theological power. He finally has the ear of the young men. And what does he tell them? What are the matters of most urgent importance for England's pastors? Put to death your sin, brothers. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And cultivate vital 
earnest, experimental communion with the living God. Owen's attention is consumed with piety before the Lord, with a living relationship with God in which sin is put to death and intimacy with God in Christ is nurtured. Now, in these final minutes, I want to turn from Owen's narrative to us. What about us? Brother Pastor, what matters are uppermost in your mind when you think about your pastoral ministry? What are the matters of chief importance? What are the great priorities in your ministry? What occupies your attention above all else? I can tell you what occupies the attention of most younger pastors like myself in our day. Pastors today are preoccupied with the busyness of church activity. They are preoccupied with budgets and buildings with endless books, conferences, and techniques for church growth, with an utter obsession over attendance and baptisms, with a breathless panting after bigger, bigger attendance, bigger budgets, bigger buildings, with devising endless plans and strategies for how to stay relevant to a godless generation that hates Christ and deprecates the things of God. Many still are preoccupied with self, with a love of the stage and the platform, with building a career and a following on the backs of Christ's sheep. So many in our day are taken up with the hurried and busied pursuit of numbers and attention and notoriety and scoring points on the man-centered scorecard. So many in the church are given over to consumerism, to worldliness, to things the Lord Himself would consider profane. I wonder if the Lord entered most American churches today, how many tables He would have to overturn. Someone asked me this week, I wrote my dissertation on Charles Spurgeon, and they asked, um, what would Spurgeon think if he attended your church? I hope he would be pleased, but a far better question to ask is, what would Christ think if He could come to your church, brother, on a Sunday morning and slip into the back row? What would He find that is pleasing to Him and honoring to Him. But maybe those of us here this morning, I hope this is true, are not marked by the largely carnal motivations I've mentioned so far. Perhaps we have simply allowed ourselves to become preoccupied with good things that are nonetheless lesser things, lesser things that keep us from nurturing true fellowship with God. Perhaps our time is largely taken up with staff meetings with arranging the church calendar, with thinking through details for this or that ministry or event, with reading the latest blogs and articles swirling around online, eagerly vying for our attention. Good things, in some way, needful things, but lesser things. Lesser things that can become outsized in terms of our priorities in ministry. Brothers, I am afraid that for many of us in our ministries, we can become preoccupied with lesser things, and meanwhile, we can only maintain the most scant and superficial relationship with our Lord. How few, brothers, in our day are caught up in God and His glory and His person and His perfections that we heard about in the previous message. How few are truly devoted to walking with God and ministering out of the overflow of vital communion with Him. We live in a distracted age, a worldly age, a superficial age, 
Our culture, and by that I don't just mean American culture, I mean our evangelical culture, conditions us to be shallow, superficial, and inconsequential men. Our cultural context is doing nothing that encourages depth of communion with God and richness of relationship with Him. And as pastors, we are too ready to trade in our birthright of fellowship with Almighty God for a bowl of semi-spiritual swill. Just the most facile and frivolous sort of dabblings in God, like a stone that skips on the water and never sinks down into the depths of God and who He is. Brothers, it doesn't have to be that way. We can have so much more of God in our lives and in our ministries. We can know so much greater depth. We can go so much deeper with Him, and we can minister fruitfully out of the overflow of vital communion and experimental relationship with God. The late J.I. Packer, who was a modern-day Puritan in his own right, said of the Puritans, they lived slowly enough to think deeply about God. They lived slowly enough to think deeply about God. Now, in light of Aaron's message, I'm not encouraging us to become slack in our work or to become unproductive or to become so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good, but I am trying to say that to cultivate this kind of a relationship with God takes time and devotion. It takes hours and hours and weeks and a lifetime of seeking God, of saying no to lesser things and yes to time with the Lord. Packer was once asked, what advice would you give to young men entering the clerical calling? He said, dig deep and dwell deep. Superficiality is the great weakness in the evangelical world today. Brother pastors, in such a context, what better antidote could we prescribe than the word given from Dr. Owen, Pastor Owen, to men like us 400 years ago? Listen, what is lacking more than anything in ministers today is not charisma or an entrepreneurial spirit or intelligence or executive competence. What is lacking most in ministers today is true experiential knowledge of the living God. Men who have experienced something of intimate communion with God in their Bibles, on their knees, in their closets, in the study, in the pulpit, men who minister out of the overflow of true knowledge of who God is. My dear brother, do you talk with God? Do you fellowship with Him? Do you treasure His Word like the bread of life upon which your soul feeds? Do you go to Him in the context of all your trials and all your sufferings? Do you call on Him early in the morning? Do you purpose to preach in the power of His Holy Spirit? Is His smile and nearness all your delight? Do we understand something of these words from the psalmist? One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 23, verse 20, excuse me, 73, verse 23. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there is none I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Men, is this our experience? Is our character and our pastoral ministry and our sermons and our efforts to disciple the Lord's people, are all these things forged in the fires of living communion with God? Brothers, if we don't have this, we're nothing. We are nothing. We are only what we are before the Lord. You can have all the outward signs of ministerial success, but you are nothing if you don't actually walk with God in the secret place. And let me just say, I'm not coming to you as any kind of authority. I'm not coming to you as someone who has so well learned these lessons and implemented them in my own life. I come alongside you as a brother pastor, a fellow minister entrusted with the cure of souls who so desperately wants to know something more of the power of God in my own ministry. Like, like, like to know something of like Moses going to the mountaintop and being with God and seeing something and tasting something of His glory and then coming down face ablaze to minister to God's people. Like, don't you want that? Don't you hunger for that? We can have so much more of that, brothers, in our ministry because we can have so much more of God who is a generous God and who freely gives us all things. My dear brothers, in our day, in our generation, in our ministries, let us once again hear the charge from Dr. Owen as he preached nearly 400 years ago from one of the world's ancient pulpits week by week to hundreds of young pastors. Owen believed that what matters most in a pastor in his own walk with God is whether or not he truly knows the Lord. Does he have experience of vital communion with God? Is he committed to personal piety and godliness in the inner man? These are the men Owen believed who are fit to pastor, men who are what they are before the face of God. And I'll just say to you, brothers, such men who know something of intimacy with God in the secret place, they don't need to wait for the opinion of the world to know that they're right. And they don't need to wait for the applause of the wider evangelical world to know that they're happy. Dr. Alan Redpath wrote these words to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the year of his retirement from the ministry at Westminster Chapel in 1968. This is what Dr. Redpath wrote to Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I have marveled at the grace of God and the anointing of the Spirit constantly maintained upon you over 30 years of ministry. This can only be the outcome of the building of a secret history with God in your own life, which has been a tremendous challenge and example to hundreds of others, including myself, who would have fared better if we had followed it in such a disciplined way. The ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, so evidently blessed by the Spirit of the living God, was built upon a secret history history with God. And he ministered out of the 
supply of that secret history with God. Ian Murray, who wrote the definitive biography on Lloyd-Jones, goes on to write, if Martin Lloyd-Jones' characteristics as a Christian were to be further analyzed, there can be no doubt that what should be put first was his consciousness of God. He believed, he knew that God deals personally and individually with His people and that their highest privilege in time and in eternity is to have communion with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. For such fellowship with God He longed, and one could not be in His presence without being soon reminded that in His scale of priorities, all else was secondary. By God's grace, let us be such men. Brothers, Martin Lloyd-Jones had access to nothing that you don't have access to. You have God's Word. You have God's Spirit. You have God's Bride, the church. Let us be men who walk with God, men who are devoted to true holiness. Let us be men who put our sin to death, who choke it out at the root, and who put on Christ and godliness, men of the Word and prayer, men who are full of God's Spirit, men whose lives and hearts and ministries are fed on vital communion with God. And may our ministries and our sermons and our counseling sessions and our discipling of the flock be nothing but the overflow of our experimental knowledge of the living God. And let us purpose that we will not ascend a pulpit and presume to speak for God until we have spent several hours in a serious manner seeking God's face. I've not said anything in this talk about how to do this. I've not tried to explain exactly what this looks like. My fashion of speaking has rather been more like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, who has heard something of the celestial city and is eagerly inviting others to join him in his pilgrimage as he seeks it. Brothers, I have read about communion with God. I have read about men who knew deep intimacy with God, and I'm so thankful to say in God's kindness, I have tasted something of it but I want more of it. I want to know the power of God in my life and in my ministry, and I want to minister to God's people out of the overflow of having been with God. Well, may this be our prayer, and may God help us, and as fellow pilgrims on our way to the celestial city, let us press one another deeper and deeper into God. Let us heed Packer's words, dig deep and dwell deep. Let us live slowly enough to know and appreciate and experience something of intimacy with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, to be called of you, to be adopted as your children, to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ, to have all of our sins forgiven, to be declared right in your courtroom, to be given the inheritance of eternal life, these are all privileges that we don't deserve. You have lavished blessings on us abundantly. Furthermore, Father, to be under shepherds of the chief shepherd to be responsible for the care of the souls of your people is only privilege. It's not anything you owe to us. We pray that in the discharge of our pastoral duties, you would make us to be faithful men. We pray that you would make us to be men who know something of intimacy with you. Men who, through the grace that you supply, put our sin to death 
put on Christ and godliness and holiness. And men who in the word and in prayer know something of real fellowship with you. Would you please sweetly invite us and draw us into communion with you and may we minister to your sheep out of the overflow of having been with you, of having known something of your character and your nature and your ways, your very person. Thank you that you're not a God who is remote and removed, but you are pleased through your Son to manifest yourself to your children, to disclose your heart to your people. Disclose it to us, we pray. And may we be faithful as we represent you to your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.